It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 147, The Battle of Karkar. Alright, so we've arrived at the Battle of Karkar. And this is where the Assyrians really begin to enter northern Israel's history. And I've got to just make a confession. In preparing and studying for this episode, this is the kind of stuff that really charges me. I mean... This battle, the Battle of Karkar, is where the Assyrians really show up the scene, up on the scene. Yet it's not even in the Bible. It's fascinating that King Ahab pulls off this almost miraculous victory in this battle against the Assyrians. I mean, King Ahab is going to lead a coalition of armies and hold back, hold to a draw. Some say it's a draw. Some say it's a victory. The Assyrians are going to be stopped, and they won't be seen of again in this area of the world for about four more years. It's an incredible victory. But what really charges me is when we find the historical and how when this historical ties into the Bible. And when you add the two together, it gives you a more rich account, and we can understand context of the Bible even greater. So with that introduction, maybe you can understand some of my excitement going into this episode. So here we go, the Battle of Karkar. I went to the Assyrian exhibit at the British Museum in London about eight years ago, and in my fascination with the colossal human-headed winged lions that once stood at the entrance to the Temple of Ishtar, I failed to pay much attention to the black obelisk that laid in the same room or a nearby room. The lions were huge and magnificent, and they draw your attention, but the black obelisk is the object that should draw the eye of the biblical student today. These obelisks, or giant stones, with engraving fascinate historical students today because they confirm the Bible so clearly in its characters. The black obelisk is an incredible archaeological find, and it ties into a future episode. In the same museum is a limestone monolith called the Kirk Staley, which documents the Battle of Karkar. Unfortunately, this is the only source we have on this event and battle, a one-sided account of the battle that slides perfectly into our biblical account. Let's set the scene. Shalmaneser III is rising in power, and he has solidified his position with the suppression of the eastern tribes and kingdoms, and now he is looking west. The Arameans have been weakened by two successive losses to northern Israel. This weakening reduced the garrisons along its border with Shalmaneser. Shalmaneser sees a weakened Aram who is all of a sudden dominated now by a northern Israel. 
Also, Shalmaneser eyes fractured old Hittite territory in modern Turkey, the largest of the kingdoms around Hamath, and he sees some much-desired expansion opportunity. But this isn't his first time to invade modern Turkey. A previous campaign awarded Shalmaneser command most of southern Turkey, and the fear of the Assyrians has stretched far and wide, and it's always there. We cannot see it or imagine the plottings of the communication of these old kingdoms, but everyone knows there's an empire rising in the east. Even the Egyptians fear another rising of an empire. Nobody wants another bully to rise up and overlord them. But when the Assyrians, they take over Babylon, there's clearly a new empire on the rise. When rumor abounds that the atrocities the Assyrians are committing and their ambitions, fear gets mixed with the boldness to work together to stop this coming threat. Shalmaneser probably helps this by threatening everyone with submission or death. Let's say his PR skills are doing quite the opposite. The driving power of world conquest was actually working against Shalmaneser. History has villainized the Assyrians, and there's plenty of good reasons. Some say they were the original terrorists, and most historians date their judgment of them based upon their time frames. Most historians around World War II just call them the original Nazis, not by belief system, but ideology and terror. Around World War I, there is a comparison of the imperialistic system which doomed Europe. It's hard to get a real fix on these guys, but they didn't help themselves. Most of their archaeological evidence points to atrocities and violence and extreme fear penetrating the deepest corridors of power on the planet. There's some cultural values, and we cannot discount the great revival coming to their capital in the time of Jonah, and their eventual end when surrounded and isolated, Hezekiah makes a stand. But at the moment, they are an empire on the rise. Dreaded and powerful, the Assyrians are here to stay for a long time. This prior invasion of modern southern Turkey causes a rallying of the small kingdoms from Aramea to northern Israel. The Kirk Stele states there was 12 kingdoms that were rallied to fight the Assyrians. The largest of these with northern Israel, Aram, and Hamath, a kingdom in modern Turkey. There's 50,000 plus troops that rallied to hold off Shalmaneser. That's a lot of troops from different nations. It must have been a sight to see. There's no specific reference to Egypt or Judah participating, but many point to Ahab's large chariot force and consider it was donated by Jehoshaphat to assist in the battle, but we don't know for sure. There was 20,000 from Aram, 10,000 from northern Israel, and 10,000 from Hamath. Participation from a nation as far away as Arabia, there was some assistance from an Amorite kingdom, and the list includes nations I've never heard of, and you wouldn't either. Shalmaneser marched his forces, apparently equal or possibly lesser in number, north of Aram and into Turkey, modern Turkey. According to the Kirk Stele, there was a rebel named Gamu who seized power after the Assyrians left from their previous campaign. He and others joined forces, throwing off the Assyrian yoke. The largest of these local kingdoms, Hamath, was the first to rise up against the Assyrian lord overlordship. Shalmaneser marched west and confronted the first of the coalition at Hamath and waxed them there. And he marched to the Arentes River and awaited the rest of the coalition which was marching after him. 
Now the coalition marches to confront Shalmaneser, who seems to park his army in a strategic location and wait for them. And who do you think's leading this coalition? It's Ahab himself. Something I just find fascinating is that the lead nation in this coalition was none other than Ahab in northern Israel. Here it is again, at the height of his power, doing something, this time leading a coalition of nations into war against the Assyrians. But you got to give Ahab credit. He works hard, and he really achieves a lot. This kind of unity takes crazy skill. Ahab pulled off this com- commanding of this coalition, apparently with great skill. To consider this is amazing. I mean, this guy holds sway over this many nations. If he wins this battle, each of these nations will pay homage to him, worship him, and send him treasure and gold. His northern extent would even surpass Solomon's. Unbelievable that this was achievable in the time of Ahab. But what was the word of the Lord? Was he marching out of obedience? Was he marching to the command of a prophet? Well, the Bible doesn't even speak of this historical event at all. So, who knows? Ever heard the statement, silence is golden? Well, with five kids in my house, I understand this statement. Silence is golden. But I believe the Lord actually speaks through silence. We'll conclude this episode with what the Lord means by silence. In the meantime, let's get back to the action. All right, Ahab must be applauded for his ability to rally people and his skills and cultural influence. But what about the Assyrians? Shalmaneser must have been bent on conquest. The Assyrians were masters of siege warfare. During this age, they deployed a great number of archers. They had swordsmen. They had cavalry. Their army was organized in well-deployed units with commanders and sub-commanders. Their archer corps was powerful, and their chariot corps was sufficient. But it was their deployment of proficient archers and siege masters in fear that gripped their enemies. We'll probably cover more in depth the Assyrian war machine in a later episode. Most likely, going into Karkar, it was Ahab who took advantage of this fear, desiring to take things to his advantage the best he could. Overconfidence probably rose in Ahab's heart. Why would the Assyrians not succumb to him like the Arameans did? Ahab put his confidence also in the horse and the chariot. According to the Assyrian account, Ahab, the Arameans, in the kingdom of Hamath, had over 4,000 chariots. These chariots would lead the way in a huge charge to destroy the Assyrian menace. 4,000 chariots, followed by 2,000 cavalry and 50,000 soldiers. The coalition would smash the Assyrians, and Ahab would increase his northern loyalties. Hamath was the southern Turkish kingdom with 10,000 troops, 700 cavalry, and 700 chariots. Much of Hamath was destroyed in the early part of the campaign before Shalmaneser arrived before the Orontes River. The scene was set in most likely quite an open plain, with little geographical features separating the armies. And according to the Kirk Stele, the Assyrians confront Ahab as he comes to them. It skips strategy, just goes to the outcome. The Assyrian style, of course, brags about gore and violence. Here, let's just listen to the Kirk Stele. It's not too long, and it speaks to itself. Now take note here, this is the only historical record we have of this battle. 
Yep, this is it. Here is the Kirk Staley, word for word. With the supreme forces which Asser, my lord, had given me, and with the mighty weapons which the divine standard which goes before me had granted me, I fought with them. I decisively defeated them from the city of Karkar to the city of Gazua. I felt with the sword 14,000 troops, their fighting men. Like Adad, I rained down upon them a devastating flood. I spread out their corpses, and I filled the plain. I felled with the sword their extensive troops. I made their blood flow in the wadis. The field was too small for laying flat their bodies. The broad countryside had been consumed in burying them. I blocked the Orontes River with their corpses as with a causeway. And in the midst of the battle, I took away from them chariots, cavalry, and teams of horses. All right, so according to the Kirk Staley, the coalition took losses over 25% of their count, and their bodies were so thick upon the field that Shalmaneser dammed up the river Orantes. Wow. I mean, what PR? I mean, don't try to imagine the Orantes River scene. It's gruesome propaganda. And that's what it is. It's propaganda. Well, almost Every historian says that this is not based upon reality for a good number of reasons. The Assyrians disappear from the area of modern Turkey for about a four-year period. In addition, when they return, their allies are even turned against them. No, actual history here was probably quite different. This is an example of the eventual winner rewriting their own history. Most historians state the Assyrians were halted at Karkar, most likely in a draw or an actual defeat. Unfortunately, no other accounts of the battle survive. Because Ahab is going to meet his own fate soon, we never see of his own account. He failed to document his account of this battle. In fact, if the Assyrians didn't create the stele, we would have utterly no evidence of this huge conflict. Fascinating. Our only historical document is inaccurate propaganda. The outcome of this battle was such that the Assyrians had to return to Assyria and lick their wounds, regroup to return for a future campaign. The purpose of the coalition was achieved. The Assyrians no longer dominated the area. Now don't get me wrong, they are coming back. Shalmaneser will return in four years. Another four years later, and another four years later after, attack Damascus proper and invade Israel. So the tie to the Assyrians was checked, and the coalition had the equivalent of the time frame between the Olympic Games to prepare for the next invasion of the Assyrians. So what does this mean? This means Ahab pulled off something amazing. He led a coalition of nations against the menacing Assyrians. So how did the battle actually go down? We honestly have no strategy, no tactics. But there are some interesting things that come out of this battle. We're going to try to allude to them with this, some illustrations. So now we're going to go off the historical roadmap, if you even call the Kirk Staley the historical roadmap, to try to prep some future events. Now we have to remember that there was constant positioning and a power struggle going on. The northern nations were grateful for the help, but Ben-Hadad and Ahab were still posturing for power. Though smitten twice by Ahab, Ben-Hadad was keeping an eye on his opportunity to retain his autonomy and ability to defeat Ahab. He watched like a predator for his time to revenge himself against Ahab.
The two kings probably watched each other even more than the Assyrians. I see the battle unfolding like this. And keep this in mind. This is my take, applying what we know about upcoming events. This is not history, but maybe. Who knows how the actual history actually occurred in the case of the Battle of Karkar. But here we go. The Assyrians, in typical fashion, were all in. Archers and chariots and swordsmen were positioned to destroy their enemies. Being ruthless, Ahab leads from the rear. And think like the bad king in Braveheart. He's playing his cards carefully. He's not going to risk his soldiers if he doesn't have to. Nor is Ben-Hadad, though he must do whatever Ahab says. Tit for tat, the two kings watch each other very closely. Ahab sends in all of the other nation's soldiers first to conserve his own. What's left of the soldiers of the kingdom of Hamath pays the most as they are thrust into the fray. The Assyrian archers tore them to pieces. The 2,000 chariots of the kingdom of Hamath were decimated instantly. The numerous cavalry of the coalition begins to balance the field of battle, and the Assyrians counter as their flanks are hard-pressed, but contained when reserves were slid to cover the flanks. The field turns into a gigantic melee, but Ahab and Ben-Hadad haven't even attacked except with small melee groups and their cavalry. Could it be this conservative approach is the winning strategy? When the tide of battle starts to bend backward, Ahab sends in a thousand troops. Ben-Hadad as well sends in a few thousand, stabilizing the front. Until the Hamath soldiers, in fear, give up the field, leaving the Israelites in Ben-Hadad's force all alone on the field. More chariots were sent in from the Allies. Ahab and Ben-Hadad committed a few thousand more troops, but there was a lag where the only soldiers in the coalition were the fleeing and dying Allied state soldiers and the few thousand Israelites and Arameans stuck in the fray. Reinforcements had not arrived, and even as they were coming, Ahab and Ben-Hadad gave up their posturing as they were all in, the entirety of their armies screaming towards the disorganized mass of the Assyrians focusing on a few thousand Israelites and Arameans. A young man, one of the new recruits from Damascus, looked around as his comrades were fallen by arrow by arrow. He could see they were being surrounded. Their reserve chariots were destroyed. The 2,000 Arameans were reduced to only 500, and they were falling by the second. The heart-wrenching sound of the thud of arrows hitting bodies seemed to be everywhere. The air was thick with arrows, stepping upon crushed limbs and pushing himself out of a formation which was getting pummeled by arrows. The young man ran at a group of Assyrian archers running between them. He tore through them and his, so his sword saving dozens of his people as they emerged from the melee and ran after further masses of Assyrians behind the archers. Sometimes the tightness of the bodies was the only thing that kept them alive as they fought and wrestled for their lives. His commanding officer was dead, and so was his, his commanding officer. All followed this young man who fought with the fury that inspired them. He seemed indestructible as he dodged arrows, and he seemed to have been killed many a time from a sword thrust that only pierced his clothing or was thrust with only enough force to knock him down but not to kill him. No, he seemed invincible, 
and hopelessly outnumbered at the same time. And the few Israelites remaining fell in line and fought with this man as his Aramean counterparts stood with him as well. Thousands of Assyrians closed in as a ring, in a ring to destroy this defiant force, which held longer than it should have. The flanks closed in around this small force. The warrior continued to fight beyond human endurance, and his inspired men held the Assyrians in a horrible, disorganized state when over a thousand chariots and horsemen and tens of thousands of fresh troops smashed in the Assyrian ranks, mowing them down in great quantities." And as the field expanded in view, the young man grabbed an Assyrian bow and targeted one Assyrian after another. Every arrow found its mark under the armor, between the armor plates, under the helmet, under the, between the helmet and the breastplate. The Aramean soldier was perfect in his aim. Another arrow hit an archer, which was about to discharge his arrow at his king. Ben-Hadad couldn't fail to notice the man who saved his life. The young man heard a screeching noise and turned to see the chariot of the king of Israel fly by him. He angled himself for another target and couldn't help but cross himself over the king of Israel in his aim, noticing how his helmet was not attached to his body armor like most kings, exposing himself to arrows aimed at his neck whose long, thick beard was no covering for arrows. He ran with his men, and his men relished seeing the death of so many Assyrians who for years had threatened his countrymen. Many more fell by the hand of this young man before the day was up. At the end of the battle, he was collecting from the dead. He remembered that age-old superstition that no one should strip the dead and take their valuables, the superstition that you inherit their final fears, he suppressed, for it was a superstition only. But it was this thought that assisted in convicting him to not continue in this path, yet he ignored it again and again. He suppressed it further when he found an Assyrian officer dead on the field. He put down his very heavy pouch and proceeded to reach into his pockets and remove articles of value. Gold and silver coins brought him a great smile. He looked at the dead officer's helmet, which covered his face completely. He liked the helmet. He could use it. The man's sword was quite nice. He seized it and his quiver. And when he took the sword from the dead man's hand, something felt wrong. But he ignored it. He bent over the dead man and took off his helmet not wanting to look at the man's face, remembering the superstition, and somehow he removed the helmet without looking at him. Then he put on the helmet and immediately threw it off his head and screamed. He looked down at the dead man whose face was infected with leprosy. This young man's name and the hero of the battle was none other than Naaman. The outcome of the battle was a success for Ahab. The loser was no doubt Shalmaneser. Strategically, he would be back in four years to reclaim victory, and of course to rewrite history as we read it today. The smaller kingdoms won their freedom, but the battle cost them much of their armies. It appears Ahab was probably much criticized for his conduct in the battle. It appears the real winner of this battle was Ben-Hadad. His army was the most successful, and a new hero emerged from a near defeat. The Bible will call Naaman a mighty warrior, and he will show up in Israel with leprosy many years from now, and Josephus will credit him with killing one of our main characters of this age in a soon-to-be episode. Ben-Adad 
who was soundly defeated by Ahab twice, truly saw how weak he really was. And most likely it was here he decided he could defeat him if he challenged him again. The Allied States no doubt respected him more. It was Ben-Hadad and Naaman who became the heroes of Karkar. So Ben-Hadad, who was constantly plotting to reassert his authority over Israel, would jump at the opportunity when he he learns that Moab was revolting against Ahab when he stripped his garrisons to march north to Karkar. Most likely, emissaries quickly arrive with word that Moab needs Ben-Hadad's assistance to fight off Ahab's years of oppression. In the next episode, we see what happens after this battle, and now the two victors, Ben-Hadad and Ahab, find themselves at war again, and we get to involve Jehoshaphat, and we see the removal from prison, the prophet Micah, and another accurate and bizarre prophecy. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, We've applauded Ahab and mentioned Ben-Hadad and Naaman's rising stars in Ahab's manipulation. Ahab pulled off the coalition, which was quite impressive. Ben-Hadad and Naaman brought the victory. So technically this is Ahab's mountaintop. But I think it is fascinating that it never makes the history books. Except in the version of the Assyrians. Poor Ahab. And I think that's the message. It, it, it also never makes the Bible. It's the good works of the flesh that have no eternal reward. Hebrews 11.6 And without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. According to the scripture, God rewards those who earnestly serve him and diligently seek him. Ahab pulls off an incredible action of unity and helps to bring about a victory. But the Lord wasn't in the battle. It appears according to the silence, God was not either for the good guys or the bad guys, whoever they actually were. He just wasn't. Now there's a building of characters for future story plots and such, but Ahab didn't inquire of God. And God didn't answer any prayers that we know of here. It's the, That's the thing. Every good deed we do, if they are in the flesh, has no heavenly reward. All actions of faith and obedience have eternal reward. The flesh can do great and terrible things. In the case of Ahab, he's fighting off the Assyrians. But it wasn't God's will or it would have likely been in the Bible. There is a huge movement now called the social justice movement. There's also great volunteer movements and acts of services worldwide. These are great, and their goals are wonderful. But sometimes we get carried away in our desire to do good works than being obedient to the true purposes God has for us. There's a lot of good things, but are they necessarily the God things for us? In the case of believers, we should act in obedience to our calling and follow the course God has for us. And sometimes this means saying no to some good things in favor of the greater works. Back to our discussion on when God is silent. When God is silent, sometimes we haven't asked him questions or even prayed. When God is silent, he's not asking for obedience. 
When God doesn't answer, we should be typically more watchful and careful with our decisions. Ahab wasn't supposed to go to Karkar. We'll find out soon enough. He's posturing and his success actually set him up for failure. His participation in this battle set in motion his downfall. See, God rewards those who honestly seek him and are obedient to him. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 But it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have heard in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Here's a profound part. Good deeds done in the flesh receive no heavenly reward. Only obedience leads to heavenly rewards. We learn this from this battle. Ahab deserved mention for this battle. He defeated or held back the mighty Assyrians with the coalition of nations. I have to say, Ahab defeated the mighty Assyrians, but this was not an act of obedience. Even this battle was not God's will for Ahab, thus no heavenly reward. Ever done a good deed in the flesh? I have. What about you? All the more reason to live and act in constant obedience to God. If so, let God let his light shine on areas where we're doing good things, but not the greater God things. And let God reveal the greater works he has for us to do. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page if you want to chat. Email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.